Everybody, just uh, hey, as you as you get to your seats, uh, Chris is swapping out a battery. Let me let me take a minute and pray for us, and just to transition our hearts. And uh, it's good to be here together, and trust that God has purpose in bringing us together. For you to be in this room, and for us to be here to sing and to worship together, let's pray that our hearts are ready to hear from Him. Why don't you go and stand with me, and let's let's pray together. God, it's good for us to to pause and. Uh, even just in the scurry and the joy and the busyness of Sunday morning to be able to settle our hearts and uh, to look towards you. And so I pray, uh, even as we sing a preparatory song for our hearts, that we would um, we'd be aware of, of what it is you want to teach us. Uh, would you allow us to leave here knowing we've been in your presence? Thank you for the joy it is to be able to sing, to lift our voices, the very breath that we sing with and that we breathe is a gift from you. And so we give it back to you as an offering. And as your people, we are gathered here to, to celebrate your wonderful grace toward us through Christ. Would you remind us of how needy we are? Even remind us how broken we are. But amaze us once again that despite those things, that we are unbelievably loved and that we, uh, having trusted in Christ, will never be, never be left. That you will hold us until the end. You hold us fast, and that we will be people who hold tightly to you. We love you. Thank you for the blessing of singing with your people. Thank you for the blessing of your Spirit within us that reminds us of all the good things that we have in Christ. Thank you for your Word that you stand to use again this morning to point us to heavenly things and away from this earth, even just for a little bit. But may we be people who are reminded of the fact that we are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this world. We are temporarily here, journeying through, and I pray seeking to make much of you as we do so. In Jesus' name.
Jesus, we, uh, we do ask that you would be glorified uh, in our, not just in our singing, but in our lives and in this moment we have to open your word. And Father, I pray that uh, just like in the moment where we first came to know Jesus, your son, that you would open our eyes to the glory that you possess in the face of your son. Uh, Spirit of God, would you move through your word um, in such a way that we would be changed that we'd be humbled, that we would lay aside uh, idolatry in our lives, lay aside sin, and run hard after you. Uh, do a supernatural work that only you can do in the hearts of your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead, have a seat. You can grab your Bibles, and let's go to the book of James together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of the chair Bibles, and I believe it's somewhere around page 950. Um, but you'll find it's toward the end of your Bible. And we're studying verse by verse through the book of James, and uh, we'll be in uh, verses, primarily verses 12 through 17 this morning. Um, I love art, but I'm not good at art. Um, one of the things I marvel at in human experience is that someone can take a blank canvas and turn it into something, because I can't take that which is conceptual and turn it into something concrete. Um, Peyton, one of my daughters, is really gifted at art. And over the weekend, she and <clears throat> my youngest daughter, Shelby, and one of their friends took a piece of paper, and they basically just created a map of, like, this make-believe world. And so they had pockets that belonged to each one of them, and they had different places and names and things, and they even took a tea bag, made it look old like a map, and it was super creative. And, but you look at it, there's so many things to see in it, like just different twists and turns and... And so I was reminded, just even thinking this morning about the way in which 
as we think about trials and the human experience, you know, there's a way in which our, our life is, is like a canvas. It's like a canvas painted with all different types of experiences, and some of those experiences are heavy and dark and difficult. And so we've been talking about trials. And one of the things that, that we need to be reminded of again today is that in, in all the different movement of God in our lives, that, that none of that is without purpose. Like none of the, the difficulty that we face and the pain that we experience is void of meaning because God is doing something through it. And we've seen a little bit of what that means as we studied through James so far. As we see that we have reason to be joyful in the midst of trials because God is bringing up about maturity in us. And we get to be conformed to the image of Jesus that for the child of God, that is a joyful thing to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we saw in verse 2 that our faith is often tested in this life. God allows tests. He allows trials to produce maturity in us. And the end product for us is joy because the end product is maturity. So if you look in verse 12, as Christians, we want to be the, the blessed man who remains steadfast under trial. We want to be those who, who keep going when things get hard in life. Keep running after God. Keep pursuing him faithfully. Be remaining faithful to him in the midst of the different shades of difficulty that we experience. We want to remain faithful to God in the midst of difficulties. For when he or when we have stood the test, this is in verse 12, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And the picture is a little bit like this. It seems to be probably James's illusion, like an athlete who is strained and endures in the midst of the competition at the end receives this wreath, a crown of reward that we would be those as believers who, who under the strain and difficulty of our own race run in such a way that we receive the crown of life at the end. If you belong to God this morning through faith in Jesus, among the deepest longings you possess should be the desire to hear the words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And today, hear what the Spirit says to his people. This is in Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And I think if we're honest, for some of us, it feels almost counter-Christian to be motivated by reward. It feels like in some ways it, it doesn't quite jive with the gospel of grace. But based on what I hear in the Bible from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter and from James here, I would, say, I would say it this way, is a purposeful, ongoing consideration of our future satisfaction and reward powerfully shapes our desires and helps us remain faithful to God. A purposeful, ongoing, looking forward consideration of future satisfaction and reward powerfully shapes right now our desires and helps us remain faithful to God. But the opposite is true as well. So let me use that same statement and inject a little bit of a difference in the wording. Let me say it this way. A purposeful, ongoing consideration of present satisfaction and reward powerfully shapes our desires and tempts us to be unfaithful to God. I'm gonna read that one more time. A purposeful, ongoing consideration of present satisfaction and reward powerfully shapes our desires and tempts us to be unfaithful to God. And so James 1, verse 13, we're going to make a transition, and James is going to start talking about temptation. 
And so let's look in verse 13. We'll read verse 13 through 17 together. Verse 13, this is God's word for us. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So one of the things at the, at the outset of this text we're studying this morning is that you and I have to understand the truth about temptation. So the word translated trial in verses 1 and 12 is the same word derived from the same word translated tempted in the verse 13 that we just read. So there's, you can put it this way, there's a, a linguistic or a word similarity in trials and temptation in this section, but there's a really important difference practically between trial or test and temptation. And so James is going to start to make that distinction in this text that we're in this morning. Tests are not the same as temptations, but here's the way I would say it that I think James is zooming us in on. Tests are often the most fertile ground for temptation. Trials and tests are to us, practically, experientially, some of the most fertile ground for our temptations to believe or not believe certain things that God says are true or begin to disbelieve things that he says are true. So let's talk a little bit about temptation's origin. So in God's sovereign governance of all things, like he allows circumstances in our lives that test our faith. We've talked a little bit about that over the last several weeks. In the simple and the significant, we believe, along with the psalmist in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all, everything. As R.C. Sproul put it, there's no maverick molecule in the universe that doesn't answer to the hand of God. And so we bless the Lord, we worship him because he's in control and he's good and he's working. But James highlights how recognizing God's hand in the testing outside of us can easily cause us to drift in our sinfulness to blame God for the temptations inside of us. And so he's forcing the people of God to distinguish between tests from without and temptations from within. And so we're going to spend our time kind of going through the different layers, and there's a lot to be said here, and it gives us some really interesting imagery. But you might read verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You might breeze over that passage and be like, yeah, duh. Like, I mean, it sounds pretty, sounds pretty elementary. I think I, I think I get that. That's pretty obvious. Well, we don't have to look very hard in the Bible to determine how quickly sin turned into blame shifting, right? When sin first entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam shift the blame of his own choice to defy God to God and to, to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God comes on the scene and 
Adam basically responds to God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And we joke about this passage. It's a little bit funny in some ways, but it represents a significant, the significant heart of temptation is to shift blame outside of ourselves to God himself. You see the emphasis, the, the woman, you put that verse back up there, the woman you gave to be with me. Just how you get that? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be, it's not, the emphasis isn't on Eve. It's on the giver of Eve. The woman you gave to be with me. She's the source of what, she's the origin of my temptation. And you're the one who gave her to me. We want to blame something or someone outside of ourselves for the temptations within ourselves. It's she or it's he or it's them or it's it or it's even God. And James says, God isn't tempted by evil. He cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It seems like something like what he's saying. So we watched the UNC Duke game last night, right? It might be too early for some of you. I get it. But it's, it's unthinkable that as a UNC fan, you would cheer for Duke. It's even more unthinkable that you would encourage others to cheer for Duke. And that's a little bit of what's being said here. It's like it's, evil is disconnected from the character. It's incongruent with the character of God. Like God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So it's unthinkable that the one whom is light would draw you unto darkness. May it never be. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. God is unswervingly righteous in his character, so it stands the reason that he would never entice someone to pursue unrighteousness. So James starts by Basically saying, well, let me tell you where temptation doesn't come from. It doesn't come from God. It's not from him. It doesn't flow out of God's relationship with you, his dealings in your life, or his character in general. It comes from within you. You are the origin of temptation. Let no man say when he's tempted that the temptation is coming from God, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. This is really colorful language. So the word lured is to be carried away and dragged off by desires. The word entice is a different word, but similar kind of tone. It means to bait or to catch by Bait, let me just summarize it this way. When we are tempted, we are dragged off by the deceptive bait of our desires. It seems to be a summation of what's being... When we are tempted, we are dragged off by the deceptive bait of our own desires. When someone is tempted, the problem is from within. It's not from without. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Now, church family, I, I don't fish i fished a couple times in my life. But I do know this, and I know some of you are like, man, we've got to work on this. But I am street smart enough to know that when you fish, you don't fish with just an empty hook. What do you do 
but you, you cover that thing up or you get a lure that looks flashy and sparkles and has some sort of attraction to it that's going to draw the fish in and cause them to bite that which, which actually will be their death. I and mean, the only reason they will bite it is because it looks nice. It's not just a plain hook. No fish in their right mind is going to bite just a plain old hook. Why? Wow, they, they bite a lure because it draws them in to make them think it's something that it's not. Does it begin to sound familiar? We get dragged away by the deception of our own desires, enticed into thinking that that which we're pursuing is going to provide us life when it really is just a means unto death and destruction. We'll see that in just a, a moment. The same word is used as stealth in Mark 14, 1. It says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth. It's the same word we see as enticed in James and to kill him. The same word is translated deceit in Acts 13, 10. So the picture is this. There is a deceptive subtlety to our desires that would even cause us to think that they're no big deal. Might even cause us to think that they're the pathway of life and satisfaction. There's a subtle deceptiveness to your desires just like there are to mine. The lure is sparkly, flashy, it grabs your attention, it appeals to the senses, it's compelling, appealing, and interesting, and yet at the same time remarkably subtle and deceptive. And I couldn't help but think of like a bear trap. I mean, bear trap is gnarly. It's like these massive teeth on it. But yet a bear or a big animal will step right into that trap. Why? Because the bait looks appealing. It's worth it after all. I mean, look, look at that piece of meat. Like, look at this thing. Like, I want that so bad. I'm willing to put myself in danger even. In fact, I don't even see the teeth. All I can see is the bait. But the animal steps in and what happens? Destruction, damage, chaos. They begin to writhe, trying to be set free. And we've felt that before by all of us in different ways. Trying to get a hold of the bait only to find ourselves caught in a way that we never thought possible or even that we desired. All because this thing appealed to our five senses. And when we grab the bait, destruction ensues. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In the New Testament, only three out of 38 times this noun for desire is used. Does it refer to any sort of positive or godly desire? It's usually lust. So this negative, lustly, fleshly desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So here's kind of two summary points here. Desire conceives and gives birth to sin. It's a really interesting picture. I would say it this way. Sinful desires have a gestation period, which culminates in the birth of sin. There's a way in which it festers and it grows, 
And it moves from one degree to the next in corruption and destruction. So desire conceives and gives birth to sin. So sin is the child of sinful desires. You'll highlight here there's actually three generations of kind of childbearing that happen in this section. Sin is the child of, of sinful desires. Psalm 714 says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Desire conceives and give, gives birth to sin. Next, what we see is sin grows up, and when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So death is the child of sin. So desire brings forth the child of sin. Sin brings forth the child of death. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, which is a really complimentary passage to this particular moment in James, it says this. It says, do not be deceived. And we'll go back to that statement. Because central to temptation is deception. And maybe I just, if I could just look you in the eyes just for a second, because it seems to be a central message to this whole realm of temptation, is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. In Galatians 6, what follows that statement from Paul is he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You may think you're going to pull one over on your spouse or on your friends or on those who are close enough to you, try and encourage you, but don't be deceived. God will never be mocked. For what a man sows, he also will reap, Paul goes on to say. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption or destruction or death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If I could draw your attention to here, there's, did you see this sinful like parallel to the completion of godly maturity and completeness that you see in verse 4? Go back to, up to verse 4. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And here's like the godly picture of completion and maturity. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Praise be to God. Right? That's what we looked at that in the, the second week or the first week of the, the series. But there's this sinful parallel to that picture of completion and maturity. So steadfastness makes us into fully grown Christians with the crown of life our reward at the end. But if you go to this passage we're in in James, and if you look at verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our desires drag us off. Sin becomes fully grown, and the reward for us in the end is death. It's like this morbid parallel that I don't think is accidental. You choose God. You remain steadfast by his grace. The reward will be maturity and life in the end. But if you sow to your flesh and you try to grab the bait time and time again, what you're going to find is sin will grow and it'll bring forth death. And there really is a choice between the two, where you sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit. 
Conception to birth, birth to being full-grown, James is clearly depicting the morbid movement of our sinful desires. And we need to consider if we're allowing ourselves, if I could put it this way, are you and I allowing ourselves to be slow-cooked in our sinful desires? Just marinating in things that ultimately are just going to produce nothing but corruption and death. Now, we are so nearsighted. I put myself in this category. Like, we are nearsighted. You see that? We saw that in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're nearsighted in our struggle with sin. Like, we don't see that which is far off. And, and one of the things, as strange as it might sound, that we have to do is we have to see into the future. Like, God commends us to look beyond the current moment to affect our choices right now. So Eric Alexander, who's a pastor and preacher, said it this way. He says, people often forget the grandchild of desire. Did you follow that progression? The grandchild of desire is death. Desire, sin, sinfully grows, and it gives birth to death. It's that third generation that people often overlook. The grandchild of desire. Garrett Kell wrote a book called Pure in Heart. It's a really helpful book, particularly on sexual temptation, but it has so much helpful content for just temptation in general. He said it this way, and I'll kind of paraphrase him. This is what, I'm, what I mean when I talk about seeing the future. And he kind of captures it this way. Because when we talk about being nearsighted, if I could just be plain with us all for a moment, when we give in to sinful temptations, Central to that moment where we choose the flesh over God is because we are only captivated by that which is right here, right now. The bait has our full attention. It's what we want. And so we don't even give any consideration to the future, to what's on the other side of giving in to sin. And so Gary Kell in his book talks about this prayer of like, God, help me to feel right now what I know I'm going to feel on the other side of sin, guilt, like help me to feel, like remember and feel tangibly what it feels like to, to turn my back on you for lesser things. Help me to feel that now, not just then after I give in to temptation. That's a worthy prayer. And we'll get to more of the positive motivation in just a second, but God, would you help us to feel right now the type of regret and guilt that we feel inevitably after sin. And family, deception, as I mentioned, is at the heart of temptation. Verse 16, go back there with me. Same wording that Paul used in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And I'll be honest, as I was studying this this week, I don't, I've never really connected verse 17, which is a good and perfect gift coming from God. I've never connected that with this picture of temptation earlier in James. But it seems like this statement, don't be deceived, is like the hinge between verses 12 through 15 and verse 17. But do not be deceived, my beloved brother. So deception is at the heart of temptation. I just want to get really practical here for a minute. And I want to share, every single one of us are dealing with different temptations. Not just sexual temptation. A lot of times our mind can go there, but I'm certain many of us are dealing with that kind of temptation. But it can be a temptation to anger, discontentment, bitterness, lack of self-control, 
You fill in the blank. But deception is at the heart of temptation. Let me just give you a few layers to this, and then we'll read a passage that kind of illustrates it. The first point would be this, is that we trust ourselves way too much. As it relates to temptation, you and I have way too much trust in our own ability and our own ability to stand against the onslaught of our enemy and all the things from within us that desire to rail against the lordship of Christ and to want to pursue lesser things in this life. We trust ourselves way too much. We think that we stand, but yet we find ourselves falling. And we need to have a healthy distrust of our flesh, of our selves. That's the first thing I'd say. We trust ourselves too much. Secondly, we view our temptation as unique. And we'll see in first, I'm just going to read that passage now because it's helpful. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. And we talked about this several weeks ago, but it bears repeating. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We trust ourselves way too much. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We view our temptations as unique. And if you pause there just for a second, why is that significant? Because if you begin to think of your temptation, your particular bent towards sin is unique. You know what it'll do? It'll isolate you from that which gives you life, namely from other people. Because after all, no, no one's going to understand. No one knows what this is like. That's what it sounds like. When you, when you don't believe that your, your struggle and temptation is common, it will become uncommon, therefore keeping you from relating to anybody else about that particular struggle and ultimately keep you from coming to God. Isolation turns into justification for your sin, but we view our temptation as unique, and that's a deceptive strategy from our enemy, but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this, is, this is one of the temptations as well. We get deceived into thinking we have no other choice but to sin. I've said this before, and I rejoice in being able to say it again. If you belong to Jesus Christ, sin is no longer your master. The grave is empty. Shackles are broken. You possess everything you need for life and godliness because of his divine power within you. There's never going to be a day as a believer you wake up and you can accurately say, I have no choice but to just give in to this sin again. That is a lie from the pit of hell to keep you in captivity. Jesus rose from the grave to give you hope for the future, but living hope for today, for now, like resurrection life now. So set, be set free from feelings of hopelessness. That's one of the deceptions of temptations. Like this, it's not worth it. Like there's just no use. It's just going to be my thorn in the flesh for the rest of my life. That's not what that verse is talking about. A thorn in the flesh isn't sin. It's some sort of struggle. And to say there's some thorn, some sin that God is just going to leave residual in you for your whole life is a lie. And until you realize that, you'll be captive to it for your whole life instead of captive to the things of God. But don't believe that you're hopeless or helpless. The last thing I'll say, and there's so much more to say here, is that we stay too close to our sin. 
We trust ourselves too much. We view our temptation as unique. We feel hopeless, and we stay way too close to sin and temptation. The last statement, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Romans 13, make no provision for your flesh in regard to its lust. Pursue holiness in the fear of God. Flee evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22, put it away and replace it with God. Don't just try to coexist with it. It'll never happen in a way that leaves you all the better. It'll only lead to corruption and deceit degradation in your heart, your spiritual life. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't stay close to your sin and temptation. Put it far away from you. This is the last thing I'll say as I close off. Our view of God is at the heart of temptation. Our view of God is at the heart of temptation. Deception is at the heart of temptation. Our view of God is at the heart of temptation. Two things I would encourage you with is love, love him, love God. And trust him, trust God. Cultivate a supreme desire for God that squelches the appetite of your desires. If you go back to verse 12, as blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Love him. I think it'd be naive to think that there's not There's a central place here, not just to practically protect yourself from outward temptations and inward desires. Everything I just listed off for you would be insufficient to battle against sin if this isn't present. A supreme love for Christ that crushes the head of temptation. It's always got to be driven by and secured ultimately by a supreme love for God over and against the things of the world and lesser things. KB, hip-hop artist, one of the favorite things that he says about this particular thing. I've quoted this before, but I love it. I'm going to say it again. He says, I feast on Christ and get so fat off of God that I spoil sin's appetite. Isn't that awesome? You feast on the things of God, on Christ himself. You find yourself getting so fat on God that it spoils your appetite for lesser things. Praise be to God. And that is true. It's not just a funny lyric. You become more and more given to the things of God. That's what Galatians 6 talks about. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You know what the opposite is true. You sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. Life and peace is yours when you pursue God. Why? Because the things of God begin to crush the head of the temptations as they fall at your feet because you have a supreme love for your Savior over and against all these lesser things that compete for your heart, your attention, but the ability to keep going when things get hard, to be steadfast in trials, enabled and fueled by a supreme love for God that surpasses even our desire for relief from the trial. Love God. Lastly, trust Him. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change what god gives and how he gives it 
cannot be improved upon. That's what the combination of these two words, good and perfect. He's good in what he gives. He's timely when he gives it. And it's full and it's complete and it lacks nothing. So when he gives, he gives all the right things at all the right times. They're good and they're complete. He's generous and he's timely. And this picture of the father of lights is as the father of the trillions of heavenly lights. He has situated every molecule in its place. And he knows you. He's actively caring for you and giving you the grace that you need and the good things that you need in every place that he has you as well. Family, don't be deceived. And this is what I'll close with. Your circumstances may change, but God will never change. There's no variation or shifting shadow with him. The trials and tests will come with great variety in your life, but there's no variation in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The movement of your life and inward struggle with sin will produce shadows of guilt and shame in your life, but the grace of God through Jesus Christ remains immovable. And where, as A.W. Tozer says, where the, the, the shade that comes from the overwhelming mountain of your sin seeks to overtake you with its shadow, the grace of God abounds all the more. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? I feel relatively certain there's probably someone in this room that's never really understood the reality of what I just said. Because like a, like a mountain that chases you, the only thing that you see and hear and feel is the weight of condemnation and guilt and shame that has come from a life lived apart from God. Let me just commend to you today that Jesus Christ provides the grace to overcome all of your shame and all of your sin. Only him. It's not found within you. It's not found in this world. It's not found in any sort of counterfeit savior apart from the name and the work of Jesus Christ alone. So trust in him today. He is unswerving in his offer of rest to the weary and forgiveness to the sinner. If you're apart from Jesus today, don't be lured and enticed by the bait of this world. The love for this world and the things in it will drag you into momentary pleasure only to leave you forever condemned in the sight of God. And church family, as I think about this issue of temptation for us as God's people, it reminds me of something I find myself saying a lot to my own heart and even just in counseling situations to my own family, is that when you claim the name of Jesus Christ, when you say that you follow him, at that moment what happens is your life begins to say something more than just about you and what you're like and how good or bad your character is. Your life lived is a testimony to, to the reality of Jesus Christ himself. Does the world see an accurate picture of Jesus through your life? Because you're choosing to lay aside lesser things and temptations and pursue Christ with your whole heart imperfectly, but passionately, consistently, the trajectory of your life is given to the things of God. And I pray more and more that would be said of us that we be men and women who pursue the things of God with our whole heart. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you are um, worthy of affection, that you are supremely satisfying, 
Uh, you are the, the source of everything delightful and good. That you are light and there, in you there's no darkness at all. You're supremely kind and generous and good. You're timely and all your gifts, you're righteous in all your ways. And we need to be reminded of these things and so much more. And God, in this particular moment, through the lens of this particular text, I pray that you'd help us not be deceived. Help us not be deceived into thinking that life is found in places where you promise that destruction awaits us. Would you pry our hands off the things of this world that war against our affections? Would we see in the future, as it were, in the moments that even today will confront us with a momentary decision as to whether or not we sow to the, the flesh or to the spirit? Help us to see on the other side of our sin and the guilt and shame and difficulty that we feel and destruction we cause that we be motivated right now to please you because there's infinitely more joy in pleasing our Father and producing and promoting life in our families and our relationships in our own heart by pursuing the things of God. So help us with these things by the power of your spirit through the, the power of your word as well. Thank you for this time we've had to study together. I pray you change us through what we study. In Jesus' name, amen.